Alexander Hamilton My name is Alexander Hamilton And there's a million things I haven't done The American theater has a rich history that stretches from its origins in vaudeville to today's hit musical Hamilton with a score rooted in hip-hop and rap. This is Cityscape. I'm Zach Zalis, sitting in this week for George Bodarchy. Today we're talking about the evolution of American culture, how we went from a time where sideshow acts were seen alongside fine art, to the emergence of orchestras and art museums, to now, when a gala at the Met is attended by celebrity icons like Beyonce and the Kardashians. We begin with an idea known as the cultural hierarchy. In almost any society, there's some forms of knowledge and some kinds of material culture or symbolic culture that people get extra credit for being um, familiar with. That's NYU sociology professor Dr. Paul DiMaggio. He says American culture began to shift with the emergence of new upper classes. So what is this idea that you refer to as the cultural hierarchy? Let's put it this way, just as people who win the war get to you know, define which side was right, um, people who are at the top of a status hierarchy in a society get to define what kind of culture is going to be high status. And this was particularly true in the 19th and early 20th century as in the United States we began to get a upper class for the first time. And as these new upper classes formed, they... Um, also began to develop a consensus as to, to what kind of art and what kind of music mattered and to build institutions that made that available to the public, but also reinforced the idea that that was a serious culture. So what are some examples of things that are considered higher and lower culture? Well, the two big ones um, were the visual arts and classical music. Now, the backgrounds of those two institutions were a little different. Um, orchestras... Uh, started out, I mean, there were always people who liked music and listened to it, but the early musical ensembles in the United States played a pretty diverse repertoire. So they might play some European classical music, but they'd also play popular music and hymns and, and everything else. Um, it was only when philanthropists said, okay, we really want to define what good music is and have uh, institutions that would exemplify that, that the orchestras like the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic began to be developed and to begin to play a canon of a sort of predictable set of composers and compositions that were defined as really the best in music. In the, in the world of fine arts, it was a little bit different because the world of the arts has always had a little bit less consensus about what the best art is because people collect art and collectors would like their art to appreciate and value. So you have you know, people who at the beginning thought the Impressionists weren't very good because they, they weren't representational enough and so on. Um, but then people collected the Impressionists and critics came around to explain why they were good and suddenly they became part of the canon as well. The musical canon seems to change a little bit more slowly because there aren't collectors, there, there's no one with a particular horse in the game to want to introduce great new artists except for the musicians themselves. So that being said, if there's not really one consensus among artists, is the cultural hierarchy more of an economic thing? Well, there's a sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu who has a, a pretty powerful theory where he distinguishes between those artists whose work is, is disinterested, who, who answer to the artistic community, to collectors and to critics, versus artists whose work is oriented towards a, a larger public or a mass market. And um, 
in general, the, those artists with the most cultural capital are seen as producing the kind of high culture, and people um, in the commercial sphere are considered to be producing pop culture. In one of your essays, you describe how examples of high culture and low culture were seen side by side. So, yeah. can you give an example of that? Yeah. So, for like in in one of the early um, uh, classical music concerts, I think it was in Boston, um, they played a piece by um, I think actually something by Mozart, and then the very next piece was a contemporary composition about a railroad train where the orchestra tried to simulate the sound of a train and they actually had a little train running around a track with cotton for smoke and you know sound effects and all. So uh, then what changed to create this cultural hierarchy? So I mean there there was always a, for a long time there was a version of it in Europe although it took a different form than it did in the US but what changed was the emergence of these upper classes in American cities and particularly new upper classes need to justify their their wealth and then they also have the money to begin to develop um cultural interests and they have the the leisure to do so so it's pretty typical for upper classes to begin to develop cultural institutions and then to think that the things that are in those institutions are of greater value than other kinds of of cultural forms. So when did we start to see that happening in America? It really began in the 1870s. So in the 1870s the the Met started, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts started. Um it happens in the orchestra world um in the 1880s. Um you begin to get music writers who laid out sort of the ideology and said of what what are the classic works but there was a big problem with distinguishing between taste and fashion so you know in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s there was a sense that what rich people liked was just fashion so what what the new institutions did because they were non-profit institutions in particular um the people who ran them can make decisions without regard for money they could do it in a disinterested way which was highly legitimate and they could also really carry through programs in education of the public and stick to a kind of canon of the best music and the best art um long enough that it was clear that they weren't talking about fashion was there any one group of people that sort of spearheaded this movement it was it was different in in all of the US cities and it took a while for it to become a national movement so in in Boston you really just had one upper class and it was a matter of its getting its act together New York was pretty different because New York really never had an upper class that stood still long enough to you know reproduce itself. So New York has always had a more fluid kind of um cultural system because New York I think always had a lot more creativity and a lot more openness to innovation. So what about the theater because you know the American theater it has its origins in vaudeville shows. And now we have the most successful musical on Broadway right now Hamilton is based on hip hop and rap. Yeah. So was the American theater ever part of the cultural hierarchy? Well, I think it I think it was. And and it's interesting that you mention Hamilton because I I think you know, the cultural hierarchy peaked between 1920 and 1950 and I think it's been pretty much disintegrating since then. In the sense we don't have a cultural hierarchy now in the way that we had one between 1900 and 1960. But if you go back before that the theater really tried to emulate the model of the orchestras and the later ballet and opera but it was never quite able to because the theater is almost intrinsically commercial it's very hard to run on a non-commercial basis so you know you mentioned vaudeville which was a really nice example and vaudeville originally was a sort of haven of vice i mean 
in, in early theaters, you couldn't even go to the third balcony because that's where the prostitutes hung out. So one of the first things that happened was vaudeville was reformed. And you also got the beginning of a, a little theater movement, particularly starting around the second decade of the 20th century, of people who very self-consciously tried to use a nonprofit model to put on classical plays. Um, they tended to mix amateur and professional just because there wasn't enough money to, to pay people. And that was kind of the way things worked in the theater, which meant it was pretty hard to take it seriously as high culture in the same sense as classical music and fine art, just because it was often put on by amateurs and they often put on things that they needed to, to make money off of. Until um, the 1960s, when a man named McNeil Lowry became head of the arts program at the Ford Foundation and, and identified about 15 or 20 theaters and basically gave them the money they needed to have full seasons with professional staff. And that created what sometimes called the regional theaters, sometimes called resident theaters all around the United States, and really ended up, um, I think, elevating the status of theaters so that the nonprofit theater in some cities became the sort of third highest status institution. Now that in itself has begun to break down a little bit in some places because the regional theaters work so closely with Broadway that they've become more commercial in their orientation than they were originally intended to be back in the 50s and 60s. Are there differences in the same medium on the cultural hierarchy? For example, genres of music? So whenever there's a new genre of music, the initial reaction is that it's the end of the world and youth are going to be corrupted. And, and you can even find people saying terrible things about, you know, Brahms, even Beethoven, you know, if you go back far enough. And also, racism and classism are an ever-present issue, so that music with its roots in African-American music was, you know, strongly devalued through the 40s and 50s and so on. And country music suffered, I think, from some prejudice against, uh, you know, the Southerners as being hillbillies and so on. So when you had a genre like rock and roll, which whose roots were in black music and in southern white music, you know, if you read the stuff now, it's it's almost impossible to think that people were listening with the same ears that we had, the way they described early rock music. Um, and then what tends to happen with new forms of music, you get professional writers who um, are critics, and they take the same sort of critical disposition and aesthetic vocabulary that people have in other forms of art criticism or music criticism, and they apply it to um, the new art form. And, you know, what do critics do? Well, they make distinctions between what makes something valuable and what makes it less valuable. And before you know it, you have a canon in rock, which at least some people accept, of, you know, what's really good rock and what is not so good rock. And then the other thing which happens is once things get into college curriculums, that's the great kind of, you know, legitimator. What is the status of the cultural hierarchy today? I think it's probably falling apart. I don't. I don't think cultural hierarchy is as important to many people. Um, now, the art that constitutes the cultural hierarchy, you know, the classical music and fine art and museums, I think is still important to a lot of people because people like it, and it's you know a lot of it is really good stuff. But um, you know, in, in 1890, you had all of these rich folks who were marrying each other, creating prep schools, social clubs, and really trying to get everybody else to think of them as a legitimate upper class in a country that had a democratic tradition and was suspicious of nobility. And they really needed art to legitimate themselves, and they needed culture to legitimate themselves. Rich folks today don't need that anymore. You know, we have a kind of political ideologies that sort of glorify wealth. And in any case, their networks are global. They're not local anymore. So 
I think fewer people really need cultural hierarchy than did in the past, and, and people have more freedom to kind of specialize in the kind of culture that they enjoy and are more likely to find other people who value it with them. Um, there, there's this idea in sociology which has some support that it used to be what got you ahead was knowing about high culture, but at some point in the 1980s or 1990s, being omnivorous was the best thing to be, uh, liking a lot of different things, including uh, rock music as well as classical music, hip-hop as well as, um, as opera. And it was the combination of tastes that was characteristic of people with a lot of education and professional credentials. So what do you see the future of the cultural hierarchy looking like? I think as long as you have institutions that invest in the reputations of, of particular kinds of art, and, you know, as long as it's good art, you know, you will have uh, classical music and the sort of classical um, fine arts having a certain prestige, but you'll also have great pop music and great hip-hop music and, and rock music having a kind of prestige as well. It'll be different, but I think that people have a lot more choice in what they like. Even institutions will specialize and are specializing a lot more. You see some of the traditional high culture institutions making room for um, stuff that would have been defined as pop culture in an earlier era. And, you know, Bob Dylan gets the Nobel Prize. <laughs> are there any other aspects of the cultural hierarchy and its evolution we didn't touch on that you would like to talk about? No, I think we, we covered it pretty well. Paul, thank you so much. Well, my pleasure. Dr. Paul DiMaggio is a sociology professor at NYU. We now turn our attention to a cultural institution in the South Bronx that aims to make the arts as accessible as possible. The Bronx Museum of the Arts prides itself in promoting cross-cultural dialogues for diverse audiences. I recently had the chance to learn all about the museum from... Holly Block, Executive Director of the Bronx Museum of the Arts. What is the history of the Bronx Museum of the Arts? Uh, the Bronx Museum of the Arts was founded in 1971. The original site was at the rotunda of the county courthouse on 161st Street and the Grand Concourse. Uh, we became one of the New York City's cultural institutions in 1978. And uh, the, um, there was a synagogue on 165th Street that had very few members left of the congregation, and the city purchased the property on the corner of 165th Street in the Grand Concourse, um, in, uh, and we moved into that space in 1982. And since then, uh, we have uh, renovated uh, the former site of the synagogue several times, and we've also uh, added a new north wing in the middle of the block, uh, and we are just about to embark on another big capital project where we're redoing the corner on 165th, and that will be the new entrance and visitor services um, uh, probably by 2021, which will celebrate our 50th anniversary. Who would you say is the current audience of the museum? Uh, in terms of percentages, between 65 and 69% of the audience are Bronxites. And um, the, the rest is, you know, both New York City-wide and then uh, also uh, international tourists as well as, you know, the tri-state area, too. So what would you say is the role of the Bronx Museum? Um, we serve in a many different capacities, but 
Um, the focus of the museum is contemporary art and education. Uh, I will say those are sort of the from from its own mission, and it is a place where uh, you know our community meets uh, and crossroads with other communities. It's a great place to come and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> it's a wonderful place to see contemporary art of both Bronx. Uh, artists as well as New York City artists from diverse backgrounds that really reflect the community in a big way. Could you give some examples of the artistic profile that you represent? Well, we don't represent artists. Like uh, We're different from a commercial gallery because we present and profile artists. Most recently, we did a three-part um, exhibition uh, that was organized by a curator named Sofia Hernandez, and um, she's originally from Mexico, and she's been living in New York, and she did a three-part series called The Neighbors, and it really talks about um, people who live, you know, in the neighborhood and where they're from, and uh, really cross-cultural exchange, recent immigrants, you know, bringing up a lot of um, uh, topics that are very current, uh, and why we work with contemporary artists is um, they often reflect, uh, you know, what they see on a daily basis. And I think that people who don't normally have any experience with being in museums, uh, I think, easily can find something that they see in a work with contemporary artists that reflects a current idea that they're thinking about, or that they want to share. One of the great things about the museum is four years ago we became free and the attendance soared from 25,000 people to over 100,000 people. And uh, this is in, in, in also because we created a, a large uh, public programs you know, division, but also we have a community advisory council made up of 26 volunteers uh, from uh, the Bronx who, uh, you know, work in many different professions who come together monthly and help promote the programs of the museum. They serve as local ambassadors to the programs. They're often uh, the people that you see introducing public programs, welcoming you in the lobby when you enter the museum, or often um, just, you know, spending time there and sharing information. How does the museum reach out to other parts of the city other than the Bronx? Well, we market widely. So we work with New York City and Co., which is, you know, the, the city's marketing arm. We work very closely with them. Also, we work with the Bronx Tourism Council, and they promote activities. Our website is, you know, updated regularly. Uh, we share programs uh, and exchanges with different boroughs. So uh, we found that um, people in the Bronx were afraid of Brooklyn. <laughs> There's been a long tradition of uh, not feeling very comfortable uh, in Brooklyn. And so we did an exchange evening of public programs with uh, the Bronx going to Brooklyn and Brooklyn coming to the Bronx. So we like to introduce different neighborhoods, uh, and we ha often have a tip sheet uh, for local activities or something that the director has gone to visit, uh, sharing with a newsletter, 
uh, it's a great place to get involved. Plus, there are not a lot of places that offer free programs for children. We have a lot of intergenerational uh, activities, such as Family Affair, which just happened this past Saturday at the museum. We had over 250 uh, visitors uh, who uh, are in the galleries making art uh, that reflect what they see on the walls. Do you find that people who are drawn to New York City, specifically for Manhattan, come up to the Bronx Museum to see the art or exhibitions you have? You know, what's interesting about tourism is that they want to come to the Bronx because they've read so many things about the Bronx and they want to visit. Um, And I think the largest tourist group besides Europe has been visitors from Japan. So we do a market a lot. Um, We do a lot with the hotel concierge through New York and Company. They get our material. We are trying to be more active. Uh, You know, for so many years, people thought the Bronx was scary. And uh, it's a fantastic place. Plus, there's so many little, you know, it's it's a borough that's made up of lots of villages. And we do really well with North south transportation east west is is not as easy and that's why all these wonderful little pockets have been somewhat saved because they're the same neighborhoods and what's wonderful also is that um the borough of the bronx you know not only are we the only borough with the in front of our name the bronx <laughs> we are also i always tell people to plan their exit route uh, through the Bronx because we are part of the mainland. That's true. <laughs> and um, I think the other thing is that, you know, we have an amazing food culture here that even though it, it for traditionally was never covered, it's still uh, popular. And now you're finding, even in the New York Times, restaurants being reviewed regularly. They just have to pay attention. Uh, we have uh, over 25 uh, arts groups, visual arts groups uh, in in the borough part of the Bronx Arts Alliance, which is made up of uh, some small groups in the borough. We are the only visual arts museum. Uh, we work very closely with our other um, cultural counterparts, such as the zoo and the garden and Wave Hill, Bronx Historical Society. So there are five of these cultural institutions, but there are so much going on in the Bronx about music and culture, and it's just uh, hidden. It's not marketed as much as it should be, Uh, and it's really great. I know many people like to uh, discover new activities, and this is the perfect place to do that. So what role does the museum's education department play in reaching out to the public? So we have many different education programs. We service Uh, quite a few students annually. So we have partnership schools where our arts teachers work very closely with the public school teachers in creating a curriculum that's combined, and those students visit the museum more than eight times a year. So they're very friendly, and they very much know about the museum activity. And we're creating a life-learning program. We also have a middle school partnership and a high school partnership. We're doing the most recent uh, project that came through uh, support from the city council is that um, we're doing an anti-gun workshops 
in, in public schools. So that's been uh, quite amazing, and we have great uh, visual documentation from what's going on. We also have a very important teen council. Teens uh, apply every year. Uh, we select 13 to 15 teens who have a paid scholarship at the museum. Last year I was able to get a scholarship from uh, Skidmore College to send one of those teens to Skidmore for the summer art program. So um, they learn all kinds of skills. You know, they keep journals, but most importantly, they work in new technology. So the um, education program has always been at the core of the Bronx Museum's mission. Why would you say that institutions like the Bronx Museum are important, especially in a society where the arts seem to be increasingly devalued? Um, people learn uh, every day from an institution like the museum. They uh, visit us. They don't feel insecure. They feel very comfortable at a place like the museum. It's really about exchange and learning. And it's extremely unfortunate. Uh, I actually sent a newsletter out this past week about trying to raise uh, awareness about what would happen if the funding is cut. There's mm -hmm. no reason for the funding to be cut. It's, it, it doesn't work economically. I mean, what happens is if you don't have support from government, it's a seal of approval, but more importantly, it matches other funding that we have. It's not the sole funding. I mean, you know, the museums across the country are diversified in funding bases, but they need uh, support from the government. Um, and this is clear to, uh, you know, if the current administration really needs to make cuts, they need to make cuts in other fields, uh, not the arts. It means that our kids who are in summer programs and after-school programs, they'll be on the streets, basically. So what would you say is the importance of the Bronx Museum as a New York City cultural institution? Um, you'll find artwork that you don't see in other museums. You will have an exchange with people that you won't normally have. Uh, in a big museum, I often tell people to support small museums because they are really hubs. I mean, we're very supportive of other institutions, and we often share shows. In the past, we did a big baseball show that was shared uh, with the Queens Museum. So we're often um, sharing different ideas and working closely with other institutions. What happens when you come to the Bronx is you discover a different neighborhood and you see uh, different artwork that you aren't seeing in other museums. Sociologists claim that society is experiencing a shift in cultural values from a hierarchy to a broader range of things. Are you familiar with this concept? First yeah. Of all? So how does the museum address it? Well, uh, we're not um, participatory in this way of thinking. I have to tell you that, you know, we're really dedicated to our own community, but also New York City and international. And it's not just about, um, you know, access to the arts. It's really about education. Also, people really warm up when they've had amazing cultural experiences. I mean, you talk to people who have 
studied music in, in lower grades. They, they might not be a professional musician now, but they certainly remember and know how important it is to have a cultural activity and to have that exchange. You must have that experience, and it can only be uh, come uh, an enrichment to your life in a big way. And remember, we work with a lot of recent immigrants who have a very distinct value for culture because in their own countries, they were very connected to culture. And then when they come here, they don't necessarily feel so comfortable running off to a museum. And what's great for them to join the Bronx Museum is that they come in, it's free, it's accessible, and they have time to think about it. And then they learn more, and they have different exchanges. I think this idea about high and low is an argument that uh, politicians use to be a barrier against uh, culture. What does the future of the Bronx Museum look like? Well, we are going to celebrate our 50th anniversary, and we really are interested in promoting uh, locally and getting those artists out internationally and nationally. Holly, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Holly Block is the director of the Bronx Museum of the Arts, located at 1040 Grand Concourse. You can find more info about the museum online at bronxmuseum.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm Zach Zalis. George Bodarchy returns next week. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.